Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. What is love? More books and songs and movies have been written about the topic than any other combined. And yet we still have that one answer. What we do know is love is the greatest human experience of all. And with regards to relationship models in recent years, some of us have become aware that one size fits all is not the solution for everyone. And that monogamy is not the only way to successfully conduct a relationship. In fact, growing numbers of people are living non-monogamous lifestyles. A 2017 study found at least one in five people have engaged in some form of consensual non-monogamy before. One approach to living a non-monogamous lifestyle could be to adopt a philosophy and a lifestyle of polyamory. And this is what I will discuss with today's guest. Dedeker Winston is a relationship coach writer and co-creator of the Multiamory podcast. And she is the author of The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory, everything you need to know about open relationships, non-monogamy, and alternative love. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Dedeker, thank you so much for being on the Superhumanized podcast today. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you. I am genuinely honored to be here. I'm very much looking forward to it. As am I. So just to write, jump right into the topic, um, when we uh, talk about monogamous people, a monogamous person would be someone who chooses to issue all romantic or sexual bonds with people other than their chosen partner. So that's the model of relationship that is generally considered the default. And that's uh, the most common at present and also that holds the most social recognition. In contrast to that, for those of the audience that are not acquainted with the term, what is polyamory? Yeah, so there are many definitions floating out there of polyamory, but the simplest definition that I tend to give people is that polyamory refers to the practice of maintaining multiple romantic and or sexual relationships with the full knowledge and consent of everyone who is involved. And of course, language is always limited. That doesn't cover every possible color and iteration of polyamory because there's a lot out there, but that's pretty much the basic. And for yourself, when and how did you discover that you were polyamorous? How did that journey begin? Oh, gosh, it really it's interesting because for me, there's kind of this combination of origin stories where, you know, there's the origin story of like when I first discovered the term and kind of really started intentionally doing the practice and building my relationships that way. But then there's also kind of this different timeline where there's a part of me that just feels like I've felt capable of this my entire life. You know, I just didn't know that there was a word for it. And I didn't know that this was something that people did. Um, you know, it goes all the way back to when I first remember some of my earliest quote unquote adult relationships, you know, as a teenager, when we're just starting to try on what it means to be in a relationship with somebody that from the very, very beginning, I remember being really struck by the fact that I could be in a relationship with somebody and I would still develop a crush on someone else, even though I was happy in my existing relationship. And 
of course I know now, I'm like, that's the most normal thing in the world. It's the most human thing in the world. You know, we're all capable to a certain extent of feeling desire or attraction or interest or a crush in someone other than our partner. But at the time, there was literally nothing in culture or society that had told me that that's normal or natural. You know, every single message that I got, either from movies or church or the media, was this message that, you know, if you're really in love with somebody, you don't even see anybody else. You don't even notice anybody else. And so the first time that ever happened to me, I was deeply disturbed, you know, at the tender age of 13 or 14, incredibly disturbed and really depressed because I thought, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken in some way. And of course I went on, you know, still practicing monogamous relationships because that was just the default. That was all I really knew. And sure enough, like the same thing would happen that like, even in a happy relationship or with someone that I was very contented with, I would still, you know, fall in love with somebody else. And I was convinced that like I was the only person on the planet, first of all, that this happened to. And also convinced that it must mean I'm just like a terrible broken person, that I can't 100% love somebody the way that I felt like I was supposed to, you know, the way that puts that tunnel vision on, those blinders on, where you just have no more interest. And so for many years, through my teenage years, through my early 20s, I would go through these cycles where you know, cycles that I think a lot of people go through actually, where I'd be in a, re- a monogamous relationship with somebody, I'd start getting an interest in somebody else. And then, you know, the options start to become very limited. Then it's either, okay, well, either I need to just kind of tamp down my feelings, stop seeing the person I'm interested in, stop entertaining any fantasies, you know, just kind of batten down the hatches and focus on my partner. Or I need to start thinking about like, oh gosh, if I'm interested in this person, maybe that means my partner's no good for me. Maybe this other person's actually the one that I should be with, you know? And so then maybe I'd break up with my partner and go to this other person. And that cycle of um, what, you know, what's called serial sometimes overlapping monogamy. It's a really common pattern for so many people. You know, we just kind of like hop from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And and ideally, if we're doing it right, each time it's an upgrade and upgrade, upgrade until we find really the one, you know, then that's the one, that's the actual one we're supposed to stick with. And so after going through that cycle, so, 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 so many times, um, there was finally one time where I reached a point where I was just like sick of it. Like it started happening again. You know, I was living with my partner at the time. I started developing a crush on a coworker and I don't know, I just hit a wall where I was just like, all the options are terrible. Like I don't want to cheat on my partner. I don't want to leave my partner, but I'm also really interested in this person and have to see them every single day. And I just don't know how to cope with it. And there was one night where I was sitting in the car and I was unloading all of this to my best friend. And he just completely off the cuff was like, well, have you considered having an open relationship? And I was actually a little bit offended at the suggestion when he said that, because all I knew about non-monogamy and open relationships was like, that's not for people who are in love. That's not for people who want serious connections, deep emotional connections. That's for people who are sex addicts or commitment phobes. Like that's not me, but I still went home and started Googling it because I was just absolutely desperate. And so this was gosh, like 10, 11, 12 years ago or so. And back then there definitely wasn't the wealth of resources about non-monogamy online that there is now. And there definitely wasn't the community online that there is now. You know, the best things that I could find were like somebody's live journal posts in some dusty corner of the internet. But what was really cool is, yeah, I came across this term polyamory and people who identified as polyamorous and people writing about their journeys, about their lives. And it just absolutely blew me away that people were writing about something where they were all consenting to this. They all agreed to this and people were thriving and they were really happy at the same time. And that just completely changed my reality after that point. And so I became really voracious. You know, I started reading books and articles and just really trying to track down absolutely everything that I could get my hands on because it really was like this huge waking up moment of, oh my goodness, this thing that 
I've been so ashamed about about myself. This thing that I've known to be true about myself has a name and has a word. It has other people doing it. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how I came to be where I am today talking to you now about all this. Yes. And also being an author of a fabulous book that I've devoured and also being a coach and helping so many people. Thank you for sharing your personal story, Dedeker. And I think you touched upon some things that are so, so crucial. What you said about that it was a pattern that you repeated, you know, getting in and out of relationships, you know, just because you happen to fall in love, develop emotions for somebody else, and then basically getting rid of the old relationship, jumping into the new one because you felt there everything was wrong about it, carrying around that guilt and feeling like something's wrong and not having any um, guidance or given by society for that, but basically exploring it all on your own, that um, takes a lot of courage. And I think so many people are going through this, but they're not even aware that they are because they're trying to function within a, a, a mold that's just not made for them. You know, um, this, this one size fits all love. I personally don't believe in it. And um, currently, do you have any statistics about how many people in the U.S., for example, are living, uh, openly living non-monogamous relationships? Yeah. So you already mentioned that statistic from 2017, where it's purported about 20%, one in five people have had some kind of non-monogamous experience. And that's a pretty wide umbrella that, that counts everything from people who've been full-blown polyamorous or maybe people who've had like one drunken threesome one night, you know, that covers a big range of possible experiences. As far as people who are openly non-monogamous, the last update that we have is between three and 5% within the United States. And now that sounds like a very, very small percentage, but to put that in perspective, currently the percentage of the population that identifies as LGBTQ is about 4%. So it's actually a very similar percentage. Percentage. Um, you know, the percentage of the population that identifies as vegan is also between three and five percent, you know. So, so, you know, again, it sounds like a tiny number, but when you think about how many people you know who are LGBTQ or how many people that you know are vegan, it can be a helpful basis for comparison to have a sense of like you probably know a lot more non-monogamous people than you realize put it into perspective. And also what's interesting, you know, for people who are really not aware of the alternatives out there who really run with this, you know, monogamy is the default model. It's just what they know. Um, I think it's also interesting to look at how even in the last hundred years, how we've seen so many changes in our cultural and societal attitudes and approaches to love and sexuality. Um, in your book, you also mentioned um, Alfred Kinsey's research in the 40s and 50s, you know, which, for example, revealed that rather than being categorized strictly as heterosexual or homosexual, that there, we actually fall along a scale of sexual preference. Today, it's completely normal, uh, you know, to read in magazines about terms like bisexual, heteroflexible, panoromnisexual, etc. And or in the 70s, you know, sheer height, who revolutionized the way we perceived and spoke about female sexuality and sex. Or just 10 years ago, the book Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha, uh, which discussed our ancestral sexual history and that monogamy was not the default back then, but that sex and love, like food, childcare, and defense of the tribe, was a shared resource. So we've come to know a lot of things about ourselves in the recent past and also about our ancestral history. But why do you think is polyamory still so stigmatized in the West? I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, firstly, we can look at the fact that already in the West, and especially specifically in the United States, we come from this puritanical heritage, right? that instills so many of us up to this day with this intense sex negativity, this intense sense of wanting to fit within normal behavior when it comes to sex specifically, because normal behavior when it comes to sex implies moral behavior or has based on those values that we've carried with us, you know, into the present. Another reason is there's something about non-monogamy that touches people 
in personal ways, in good ways, and in bad ways, in a way that other things don't quite. So for instance, like with um, being LGBTQ or being queer in any sort of fashion, you may have never in your life experienced what same-sex attraction feels like, or even the inkling. You may be very, very straight. And so when you have a queer friend, maybe you can't really relate to their experience, but you still love them as a friend. You're still fine with who they are. You know, it doesn't really threaten anything within you. When it comes to non-monogamy, non-monogamy is something that everyone has a touch point to in some form or fashion. So as I would grow up to learn, you know, everyone has experienced being in a monogamous relationship or being in some kind of exclusive connection with somebody but still being attracted to somebody else or finding other people attractive. I don't want to paint with too broad a strokes, maybe not everybody, but most of the population. Most of us have some kind of touch point to non-consensual non-monogamy or cheating, you know, whether that's just through it being a really common storyline in our TVs and plays and dramas and stuff like that, or they themselves have been cheated on, or their parents cheated on each other, or they themselves cheated on a partner, you know, like there's those really painful touch points that people have. And so I think it just makes sense. I mean, the stigma definitely sucks, but I think it makes sense that there's there's a lot of forces kind of coming together to really leave for many people just a bad taste in the mouth right out the gate. And then combined, of course, with the fact that like so much of our storytelling around romance and sex and love really prioritizes that one-on-one connection, you know, extremely so, extremely so. And I think that it's just, you know, it's something that, again, even though as a practice, this has been around for so many hundreds of years and in so many different cultures, but there's something about kind of this new emergence or this new wave of non-monogamy and non-traditional relationships that definitely really threatens something in a lot of people. Superhumanize. I feel there's a uh, great awakening going on in so many ways right now. You know, people are connecting to what I like to call their deepest truth again. They're um, really looking for a sense of purpose and not just functioning within the rat race. Uh, Not just this uh, last year where, you know, we've all been going through this global pandemic, but already the years before, I think people are really starting to look at what their priorities are and um, whether they want to live their wants or want to fit in within the shoulds. Mm. And there's something you just um, said about why, you know, reason why it um, is still so stigmatized in the West polyamory because it touches upon this uh, cheating, for example. And I, I find it interesting that Uh, polyamory, the details, which I'd like to talk about you just in a few minutes, I find it interesting how it's often conflated with cheating and infidelity, when it actually seems to be more honest than many monogamous um, relationships. So, but that being said, when we talk about alternative relationships, there are different structures and practices that fall under this umbrella. Um, what are the most commonly discussed and practiced ones? And what are the difference, let's say, uh, between what is a polyamorous relationship and, for example, what is an open relationship? Yeah, so when we start to dive into language and labeling, the thing is that these a lot of these terms are very, very new and have evolved tremendously, even in the last 10 years, you know? And so... Of course, as happens in so many spaces, you know, you could get into so many debates about the exact meaning of a particular word or a particular label. So I have to give that caveat. But for a lot of people, and the way that I tend to think about it as well, I tend to think of non-monogamy as the umbrella term that can cover a lot of different ways of relating. For a lot of people, um, the term open relationship or open marriage sometimes calls to mind this sense of um, you know, maybe a couple who are together, maybe they choose to be more emotionally monogamous, but maybe it's like, okay, when you go on a business trip, you get a hall pass to go hook up with whoever. And maybe we don't even talk about it. Or maybe it's something like 
we are in an emotionally monogamous relationship together, but once a year, we're going to go to a swingers resort and just have a wonderful time at the swingers resort. And then the rest of the year looks pretty vanilla and monogamous and plain. So again, that's just kind of a loose definition um, that stands in contrast to some people who identify as polyamorous or solo polyamorous or relationship anarchist. There's all these kind of different flavors in between. Um, now, it's interesting you asked the question about like what are the most commonly discussed styles versus the most commonly practiced styles, because there is definitely a contrast there. I think that what I see in the media, both in um, you know, representation of polyamory in fictional TV shows or movies, as well as what uh, news media tends to want to focus on is the triad is like, that's the relationship format that just everyone wants to know about and everyone's really obsessed with. And uh, for people who don't know, a triad usually refers to a relationship between three people. You know, you can kind of think of it as a triangle where every person is involved with every other person in the group. So just like a three-person relationship. Um, now, the thing is that in reality, from studies and surveys, like triads are actually relatively rare. They make up a pretty small percentage of the non-monogamous population. Understandably so, because it's like group relationships are hard to maintain. It's a really tricky dynamic. It it's, um, requires a lot of care and emotional labor. And but for some reason, you know, it's like this is the model that I think a lot of the media latches onto. This is the model where when I tell people that I'm polyamorous and that I have two partners, everyone assumes we must be in a triad together, which isn't the case. And I think there's something about um, cognitively, I think for some people, it's just easier to make the leap to think of, okay, if a, if a quote unquote normal relationship is two people who are monogamous together, and then polyamory, okay, we just add one person to that. Okay, so now it's three people who are monogamous together. Okay, great. I get it. I can understand it, you know? And I think that's why news media gets so excited about it. Um, you know, reality producers get so excited about it is that it cognitively feels like less of a jump for some people. So that's triads. The most commonly practiced way of relating that I've seen and numbers seem to support this is what's known as essentially kind of like multi-dyadic relating. So as in it's multiple dyads, so multiple pairs of people who happen to be kind of connected together almost in like a little mole molecule, which is why some people call them like a polycule essentially. So it's like the idea that, you know, I have my partner Jace who is, you know, in a relationship with me. I also have my partner Alex. We're in a relationship together. Alex and Jace are friends, but they're not dating each other. And then, you know, Alex may have another partner, Jace may have another partner. And so it's not like it's a big group relationship where we're all going to move into a house and like build a commune together, but it's like a little structure in and of itself by which we're connected. And that seems to be the way that most people are practicing non-monogamy these days. Polycule, I love it. Yes. <laughs> very, yes. very cute. And I also find very interesting, you know, how um, pop culture, what it, certain things it picks up on and then also, um, you know, spreads, you know, whether it's in, in, in news media, magazines, or even even on, on TV. I mean, we've seen series like um, Big Love uh, or when, you, when I read an article in a big leading um, European newspaper about, uh, you know, uh, opening up your relationship sexually, usually the constellation still is one male, multiple females. It's very, very one-sided. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, though, I just recently published an article on a subgenre of the romance genre, which is called reverse harem. Mm -hmm. So this, these books, these romance books are all about the the female protagonist not having to choose, having multiple, you know, lovers, and they're all happily live all live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to see that in the forums, the women that discuss this are women from all walks of life, all ages, um, all kinds of sexual orientations, um, all kinds of different, uh, you know, jobs. Um, so, and this 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 genre has literally exploded over the last few years. So there is a very different interest 
into this freeing up love and relationships and discussing ideas than how it is still portrayed in pop culture and try to be, you know, put on us, you know, where the woman still is, uh, you know, put in a certain role. Yes. Yeah. And I would definitely say that it's, it's similar, you know, our image of one man with multiple women, again, it's like this weird thing where on this cultural level, we're more comfortable making that leap than we are making the leap to the image of a woman with multiple men. And not to say that that's right or the way that it should be, but it's like, because of patriarchy, we have this long history of just being shown that image multiple times, you know, of just like, yeah, the king or the chief or whoever it is, of course he has multiple women and wives and concubines and that's just the way it is. And we're, we haven't really been presented with the opposite image very often. And then of course, combined into that, we also have this very old cultural story that men are naturally non-monogamous and women are naturally monogamous, even though there's a lot of science to suggest that that's not the case. You know, the science suggests that women are much more likely to get frustrated, bored, dissatisfied with sexual monogamy faster than men are, as a matter of fact. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that is another thing that you'll see again in the media coverage, you know, like if I see another interview with like a male, female, female triad, you know, I can't roll my eyes any harder. It's, it's you know, it's, it's almost to the point of becoming like a trope or like a meme, you know, something that's really not that representative, I think, of the non-monogamous community as a whole. Right. And I think, you know, what, what you just said, of course, it's, it's a, uh, an outgrowth of uh, 3,000 years plus of cultural conditioning via patriarchy. And of course, we're also dealing with something that's called the Madonna whore complex. So either a woman is the virgin, the saint, and supposed to be put on a pedestal, or she's the whore. And, uh, you know, then that's something you may desire, but that's something you do not associate with publicly. And it's certainly not something you're going to live. So we're still dealing with <laughs> all these things that are uh, subconsciously influencing how we form opinions. Um, yes. What you mentioned before, there's so the one thing is polyamory, but there's also uh, anarchist relationships. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, relationship anarchy is this really interesting concept. And again, the term itself has has been around for less than 10 years formally. So this is a term and a concept that still is getting its legs, still is getting its community, still is figuring out its actual kind of parameters and definition. So the term relationship anarchy actually came out of, I believe it was, um, I think Swedish, a Swedish community of queer people and specifically this writer, Andy Nordgren, they wrote this amazing piece, this amazing essay just simply titled like a short instructional manifesto on relationship anarchy. And essentially it was born out of this queer community where the people in the community were really grappling with like, how do we create relationships with each other to meet a variety of needs, not just romantic and sexual needs, but also like family needs, co-parenting needs, you know, especially for queer people who are much more likely to have been disowned by family members, much more likely to have been cut off from community. And then it's kind of like, well, how do we choose to relate in ways that, um, doesn't necessarily follow the mold, doesn't necessarily follow the pattern. And so, relationship anarchy is kind of this idea that we, between myself and another person, we're the two people who decide what that relationship is going to be, what are going to be like our agreements in that relationship, how we're going to choose to relate to each other. And we choose that just between the two of ourselves on based on what we want, as opposed to what culture thinks or what society thinks or things like that. So it's a little bit of a heady concept. I find it easiest to explain with examples. You know, the example that I often go to is this idea that someone may feel, okay, you know, I, I want to have a romantic and sexual partner, but I'm kind of more interested in raising a child with my best friend rather than with my romantic and sexual partner. And so maybe I'm going to negotiate that with my best friend, that maybe my best friend and I live together and we raise a child together. We adopt a child and raise that child together while still having my romantic and sexual partner separately. And this idea that we all kind of negotiate that and provided that makes us all happy, 
you know, then that's what we're going to do instead of kind of falling to these default scripts of, well, if I want to have a child, it has to be with the person who is my romantic and sexual partner, you know, like, and, and therefore I can't prioritize maybe like my best friend relationship because there's kind of this, this hierarchy that gets imposed upon us that whoever is your romantic and sexual partner needs to become number one in your life. Um, so that's kind of the best broad strokes explanation I can give. Like I said, the term itself and the practice itself is still, I think, in its infancy and in its really nascent stages. And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out where they fit within that. Yeah, I found, um, I have actually uh, read parts of um, Nordgren's um, mm. manifesto. And what I really fascinated with me and resonated with me was um, the part where it speaks about love is abundant and every relationship is unique and that love is not a limited resource. Mm. And I think we still so much in our culture, we operate not just in the realm of relationships and, and love, but generally resources, money, anything, we operate from fear and lack uh, in all aspects of life, a fear that there's not enough. And I think that truly is a source of so many of the ills and problems we go through today. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think that things like the industrial revolution probably didn't really do any favors for us as far as how we relate to people outside of ourselves. You know, after the industrial revolution is when we start seeing forces really pushing people into smaller and smaller and smaller family units until we just become like the tiny little nuclear family unit. So, you know, this nuclear family unit as a default is a relatively new concept, like maybe a hundred slightly over 100 years old, really. And it's interesting because that's another thing that I think hasn't really done us any favors, you know, and I think has helped produce this sense of lack of lack of resources and lack of time, you know, because with this like tiny little constricted nuclear family, you know, then it becomes about, well, I have to prioritize these people, I have to give all of my time and all of my money to these people. And there's not enough to go around to su help support like my neighbor, my best friend, my sister, my brother, whoever it is, it's like the nuclear family comes first. And while I don't want to say, you know, of course, there's a lot of people out there living that way and a product of that culture. And I don't think that it's inherently toxic or awful or that that's bad. But I do think that it has gotten us into this place where really our only sense of community and support from human beings has to come from our little nuclear family. That's kind of what we're encouraged to do. And really our only source of very intimate, deep connection and support has to come from our romantic partner, who's also our co-parent, who's also the, the person we're cohabiting with, who's also the person who's, you know, helping us manage work life and, and all of those things. And while that does work out for some people, as far as human beings go, you know, we really did evolve to kind of have a much wider support network around us. And so, and so, yeah, I think that sense of lack means that we end up putting a lot more pressure upon like our singular monogamous romantic partners to provide a lot of things for us. You know, even in the last 50 to 70 years, the concept of marriage and what marriage means and what marriage should provide for you has really gotten crammed full of a lot of expectations, a lot more than there used to be. And so, yeah, you know, I do think that it's all connected. And, and I don't say that to imply that if tomorrow everyone was polyamorous, that would fix everything. And, and that's definitely not the thing that I want. But I do think that there is something about people starting to wake up and starting to realize that like, oh, there is a wealth around us of connection, of community, of support, of you know, the things that we need to thrive and survive as human beings. And it's okay to kind of branch out for those things. Superhumanize. And what you just touched upon as well, the enormous pressure on one person to have to be everything for the other person, romantically, sexually, best friend, work, life shared. It's a huge load. And it's not a surprise we look at the skyrocketing uh, divorce rates. It's, it's, a, it's, it, it's a huge responsibility and burden. And also, as we know via anthropologists uncovering this, this is not how in the past human 
um, families, larger families and tribes have been structured. So going back to the um, polyamory, what are the most common misconceptions that you are faced with? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> um, we kind of already touched on one briefly, but a really common misconception is if you're dating multiple people, that means everyone's in kind of this weird hive mind commune group relationship together, like everyone's sleeping in the same bed, living in the same house, which is definitely not the case and definitely not an ideal case for a lot of people even. So that's one. A lot of people perceive that maybe this is some sort of weird religious thing, because I think especially in America, hearing about polyamory, people think of polygamy, people think of sister wives, you know, big love definitely helped to put that in people's minds. And so people think of that. There's a really common misconception that if you are in relationship with multiple people, this must be a temporary transient state. You know, that this this must be your version of playing the field. This must be your version of just dating around until you find the one who's actually going to do it for you. And then you're going to get rid of everybody else. And then you're going to be with that person. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of thinking that, again, it's a phase. That it's not going to work out when you get older. It's not going to work out when you want to have, have kids. And it is true that for some people, some people kind of can be a little bit more chameleon-like in their relationship format and can actually move quite fluidly and nicely between practicing non-monogamy and monogamy, non-monogamy during a particular phase of life, monogamy during different phases of life. Like people certainly do that, but there's also a lot of people out there where it's like, no, this is just how I do relationships and this is part of who I am and that's unlikely to change. So I'd say that that's probably some of the top misconceptions. Oh, another really common one is that it's about the sex you know, that it's, that is just about the sex. Like it's one of those weird things where people immediately want to know what the sex is all about, you know, and how often you have group sex and how often you have orgies and how great it is or isn't. And what is really interesting is that within the polyamorous and non-monogamous community, there's actually a surprisingly high percentage of people who are asexual and aromantic represented within that community. Um, part of that being that, you know, I have a fair number of asexual identifying friends where they enjoy being able to like connect with someone romantically and maybe even get touch and get affection. But knowing that like, I don't have to make myself have sex that I don't want to, my partner or my partners, if they are sexual people can have sex with other people. And then that's not on me. And so it is actually surprisingly, you know, a lot of people who identify as asexual find it as a very adaptive relationship format to be in as well. That's fascinating. I have not even thought about that. Uh, that's actually solving a, a very big problem that some people have mm. and still allows them to be in fulfilling, uh, loving relationships. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think for me personally, at least when it comes to the sex, I have just so appreciated not having that particular form of pressure of needing to be everything sexually to a partner, you know, it, it really helps me to feel like I can show up authentically as far as who I am as a sexual being and what I like and what I don't like, you know, and I can be honest with a partner of, yeah, I want to do this. I don't really want to do this. I may be okay with this versus, you know, in a lot of my monogamous relationships, there is kind of a little bit of that narrative that I think especially gets sold to women that like, if you cannot perform 100% everything that your partner wants, like they're going to leave you or they're going to cheat or they're going to find somebody else. And, and so like you, and it's going to be your fault for, for not, you know, being able to be the porn star and not being able to perform exactly everything that your partner wants. Um, and so I know for me, it's really helped me to just show up to sex a lot more authentically and with a lot less shame about what I do like and what I don't like. Mm. It's just a joyous and authentic state of living, mm. uh, connecting to who we really are deep down inside and actually also be able to express it in this physical existence. Um, mm. For people who are thinking about going on this journey because it resonates with them, what is the advice you have for them? What are things that need to be considered 
in order to begin and integrate this new lifestyle, or should I say love style into their lives? Things like how do you approach your partner if you have one? Um, how do you, in case you wish, to let your family know? You know, things like, are you going to bring your husband and boyfriend um, home for Christmas? You know, all these uh, types of uh, situations and things that will come up for people if they make such a lifestyle change. Yeah, that, so that hits on a bunch of different arenas, potentially, with, with a major change like this. So as far as someone, anyone out there who's listening, and if this resonates with them, you know, the first thing I recommend people do is just start to educate yourself, you know, go read books. The great thing, you know, now different from several years ago, when I was first diving into this, is there's a ton of resources, absolutely a ton of resources, you know, there's books, there's podcasts, there's blogs, there's social media accounts, you know, I think especially what we're seeing with the next generation with Generation Z, they're just already so much more comfortable with this stuff and talking about this stuff. So there's a lot of places that you can go. Um, to find someone whose perspective you resonate with. I do recommend people get a wide variety of perspectives. You know, there's message boards, there's subreddits, there's online communities. There's so many places to go to just start doing the work of just kind of educating, educating. And also I really encourage people as well to kind of, as you're educating, as you're reading to also journal, like keep track of, oh, this really stood out to me or, oh, this sounds really nice. This sounds really scary. I'm not so sure about this, just to kind of have a sense of like what's specifically resonating for you. Now for people out there who have a partner, maybe have a monogamous partner, of course that conversation can be really fraught, you know? Um, it depends on kind of what state your relationship is in. For some people, just being able to float the theoretical of, hey, how do you feel about non-monogamy? You know, that's not going to cause a huge rift in their relationship and they can talk about it and it's going to be fine. And for other people, that's, that's really opening up a Pandora's box that's very, very scary. So, of course, I encourage people to proceed with caution. Now, when people are able to have that conversation with a partner, they can definitely expect that, like, there's going to be ripples, there's going to be impact, you know, like there's going to be something. And so it's going to be best that if you can be in a place to be able to hold that and be compassionate toward that. And I think that also, you know, if you and your partner have come to the determination that you're interested in trying this, interested in experimenting with this beyond the normal, just kind of like educating yourself, reading books together, talking about it. Like I really, really encourage people to go get some professional help. And of course I'm biased because like, that's what I do. That's the work that I do. It's the work that I love to do, but it's really, really crucial to take a temperature check of the health of your relationship as it is. I mean, I think this is somebody, ever, something everybody should be doing regardless of whether they're opening up or not. But the thing is that it's like the opening up process, any cracks in the foundation, any dysfunctional communication, it's like that's all going to get dragged out and have a spotlight shown on it. And ultimately, that is a good thing. You know, if you can have the spotlight shining on that, that means you have a sense of where we need to work, where we need some help, how we need to improve things. But for some people, like having the spotlight shining on that could also reveal like, oh, wow, this relationship is just not really a functional relationship or it's a relationship that I'm not actually happy in. And so I would also encourage people to just think about the long term. And, and I don't have necessarily a very clear black or white answer for this, but like I do work with a lot of people where sometimes it brings up some really, really big questions for them, big questions about identity, big questions of the sense of you know, what is my purpose in this? Like, what is resonating within me about this? Is this something where I could be fine to be in a monogamous relationship, even though I know that this is true about myself, you know, but I'm fine to be monogamous? Or is this something where being in a monogamous relationship is always going to feel stifling or a little bit upsetting? So uh, again, I don't have any pat answers because these are like huge questions for people. It's it's not like a throwaway conversation. It's not a throwaway question, but I really encourage people to just like take it slowly, take your time, get as many resources as you possibly can. And yeah, you know, really honor the time that it takes to kind of go through these difficult questions and these difficult conversations. Hmm. Yes, that makes total sense. And uh, with regards to polyamorous relationships, are there any differences 
um, to keeping them happy and successful compared to monogamous relationships? Um, you know, is, is there a difference to, quote, manage multiple relationships and, and making sure everybody feels good and loved? Are there certain ground rules, even though I don't mm. want that word? That I'm really glad you asked that question. I think years ago, like seven years ago, when we were first starting up the podcast, you know, we started the podcast kind of under that assumption of, well, polyamorous people need a special resource or a special podcast so that they can know all the special things in order to be able to maintain their relationships. And while with non-monogamy, yeah, there is kind of a subset of special skills, um, that maybe you need to develop and need to work on. But over the years, as I've done more and more relationship research, I've just realized that a lot of it is very much the same. I would say like 95% of what makes a good, happy, healthy, strong monogamous relationship also makes a good, happy, healthy, strong polyamorous relationship. So, you know, like gentleness and compassion and communication and the ability to speak honestly, the ability to be vulnerable, the ability to have boundaries, the willingness to, uh, you know, tackle difficult conversations for relationship maintenance. There's a lot of overlap. The Venn diagram has a lot of overlap. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, that's the thing where a lot of my job in working with people has just been taking some of the best research-backed relationship advice out there and just having to translate it or tweak it slightly to be able to apply to multi-partner relationships. Mm. And with regards to the one big probably it's called a green elephant that may mm. come trampling into the room. Mm -hmm. uh, you as a coach, what are the most important things to tackle or reframe in our minds uh, when it comes to dealing with jealousy? Yeah, that's, that's like the million dollar question. You know, that's the one that everybody wants to know. And again, that's another one where there isn't necessarily a singular answer. I've felt that with jealousy and with envy, First of all, it's an emotion that, of course, all of us feel, and it's not a bad thing to feel it. And we feel it in a lot of different situations, right? You know, we can feel professional jealousy when a coworker gets a promotion that we were hoping to get. We can feel jealousy with our siblings if they're getting attention from our parents that we're hoping that we can get. We can feel jealousy of a friend, you know, again, all these same situations where we can have jealousy. And it is kind of a funny cultural thing that for some reason... Jealousy in those situations is seen as really normal, expected. There's good and bad ways to take care of it. That's okay. But then when it comes to romantic jealousy, the narrative is very much like, oh my God, just avoid it at all costs. Like if you ever have to feel romantic jealousy, that means something is very, very wrong. So there's that in and of itself, which I think is a little bit funny. Um, when it comes to non-monogamy, you know, handling jealousy, one part of it is some deprogramming. You know, one part of it is just learning to think differently, learning to think with more of this mindset of recognizing abundance and recognizing where there's like, you know, kind of scarcity mindset or things like that. Some of it is just kind of deprogramming and, and learning to understand through experience that, you know, your partner having another partner doesn't necessarily mean that they're less in love with you and understanding that when you fall in love with someone else, it doesn't mean you're maybe necessarily less in love with your partner. That's just a small fraction of it. The rest of it, though, is this huge personal journey. You know, for me, I think that jealousy serves more as like a marker or a signal rather than a thing in and of itself. You know, I always feel like when jealousy comes up, it's trying to tell you something really important. It could be telling you, hey, you know, I really value this relationship and I'm scared of my partner leaving me. And, and I just feel really scared. It could be telling you, hey, this person that my partner is dating has way better hair than I do. And I'm insecure about my hair. It could be telling you, oh my God, this reminds me of this horrible situation years ago when, when someone cheated on me and just like how terrible I felt. And it's like all of those situations can be held with like compassion and knowledge and skill and support. Um, so again, I think that while some of it is deprogramming, a lot of it is really, really personal to each person. And mm. it's really scary and uncomfortable to go through jealousy. And trust me, I mean, literally, like, I still feel jealousy to this day, not quite in the same way that I used to years ago in monogamous relationships. It kind of comes up in, in slightly different flavors now. 
but it's, it's always just kind of a signal for me pointing to like the next area of growth or pointing to, Ooh, this is a thing you haven't been asking from your partner or, Ooh, this is a scary thing that you haven't revealed about yourself to your partner, you know? And so when I think about it that way, it becomes less of like this big, scary dragon and something that's a lot more manageable and also potentially a lot more helpful. Mm. It really sounds like this uh, journey with um, polyamory is not just a journey outward and exploring who you are with different people and different loves, different kind, different kinds of relationships with multiple partners. It really also sounds like a deep journey inside and getting to really, really know yourself well and awakening to who you really are. 100%. I think that if you're going to do anything out of the ordinary in life, anything that's outside of the mainstream, anything that's coloring outside of the lines, I think it's impossible to do those things without having to look inward at some point, without being forced to look inward at some point. And that's a kind of work that is both incredibly disruptive and scary and also really wonderful and can create so many important turning points in one's life and in one's development at the same time. Superhumanize. Speaking about coloring outside of the lines, and uh, you spoke about the misconceptions uh, surrounding polyamory before, um, but let's talk about the judgments which come from a different place and the judgments people, especially women, are faced with when they do color outside of the lines. How can we neutralize judgments with grace? Oh, neutralizing judgments with grace. I really like that phrase. Yeah, well, I've definitely found that a lot of people who have been non-monogamous for a long time grow quite used to being able to have these conversations with people, um, grow quite used to having kind of a set of answers to fall back on, having a way of gracefully ducking out of a conversation if it's clear that it's not going anywhere. But for people who are relatively new, um, that can be really scary and really, really difficult because yeah, you know, people will offer up their unsolicited opinions. And sometimes those unsolicited opinions can be really hurtful, can be really misinformed, can be really upsetting potentially. So, you know, a couple things. You did ask earlier about uh, the coming out process. And I think that that's part of this as well. When it comes to kind of opening up to people about being non-monogamous or being polyamorous, the first step is just evaluating if this person is worth the conversation or not. Because sometimes they're not. You know, like just because you are non-monogamous doesn't mean by default that you have to tell your parents or have to tell your family members. You know, I think that maybe unfortunately a side effect of social media has been that we feel this expectation or like this pressure that if I have a major change in my life or a major realization about myself, I have to give a press release, have to give a press conference. I have to like write up the long Facebook post so that everyone knows what's going on. And that's not necessarily the case, you know? So I think that the first step of these conversations is even determining is it worth the conversation? Is it safe? For some people, it's not even safe. It can be physically dangerous or maybe not safe because you could be threatening your job. You know, you could be threatening a relationship that you actually want to stay peaceful and stay in your life. So I just want to put that out there that it's 100% okay to choose not to have a conversation or choose not to be out. I still make those decisions to this day and I'm like as professionally out as you possibly could be. But I think at this point, you know, I know when it's important to conserve my energy versus when it's more important to like speak up and, and kind of help educate someone. So I think that's the first step. And then steps beyond that is for you trying to figure out again, monitoring through a conversation, you know, is this person someone who seems like they are curious? Are they asking me questions? Even if maybe their questions are a little weird or make me uncomfortable, 
are they asking questions and coming from a place where they feel like they actually want to know and actually want to be informed? Or is this person just trying to like poke holes, just trying to make me uncomfortable, just trying to get me to capitulate? In which case it's also okay to have boundaries and to just step out of a conversation with something like, you know, I appreciate your concern. This is working for me right now. Um, but we don't have to talk about it anymore, you know, or whatever it is. It's okay for things to be a little bit awkward for the sake of preserving your own energy and your own mental and emotional labor. Mm. And on a broader view, um, in your opinion, your vision, what things would fundamentally change in society were we to openly accept all kinds of different relationship models and have people decide for themselves versus it be decided for them. Yeah, wow, what a world. Um, what an interesting vision to have. Uh, I think we're still living in this model that to me strikes me as really weird where we tend to have like one type of relationship that is the state sanctioned relationship. And it sounds weird to put it that way, but like, that's literally what it is. You know, marriage, monogamous marriage is the state sanctioned relationship. That's the one that gets all the tax breaks. That's the one that gets all these benefits. And so what I see from a practical standpoint is, I mean, what I would love to see is I would love to see those kind of benefits rather than being given to someone based on whether or not they're in the state sanctioned relationship, I would love like single people to be able to get those benefits. You know, I would love for there not necessarily to be tax breaks based on what kind of relationship that you're in. As far as the legal standpoint of thinking about things like plural marriage or polyamorous marriage or stuff like that, I'm actually not a huge propo proponent of that. You know, in 2015 in the States, right after gay marriage was legalized, a lot of people in the polyamorous community were immediately asking like, oh, is non-monogamy next? Is that the next thing that we could push for? Is that the next frontier? And the thing is that like, there's not a ton of people in the community. There's not a ton of leaders in the community who are really pushing for that. Because if you think about it, like a lot of people who have chosen polyamory or non-monogamy often are people who already are kind of questioning marriage in and of itself as a structure. And so I wouldn't say there's a lot of t people who are like super pro marriage as it is. Um, yeah, I think that's where I come back to is, is I would definitely love for there to be acceptance of a wide variety of relationship types, but ideally it really shouldn't come down to what relationship that we're in as far as kind of what kind of benefits we get. Mm, yes. And, and an openness for, you know, all types, whether you, uh, whether it's best for you to be monogamous, polyamorous, being in a triad or whatever your concept is. Mm. And Dedeker, there's a question I ask every guest on the podcast, and that is, what are the practices that most profoundly in a positive way affected your life, whether it's mentally, physically, or spiritually? Oh, goodness. Um, I feel like I'm sure a lot of people have said this, so it doesn't feel like a very original answer, but definitely meditation mm -hmm. for me. Uh, doing a daily meditation practice li literally changed my life and continues to change my life. And it's it's difficult for me because honestly, like my polyamory is very much wrapped up in my spiritual journey and my meditative journey. And for me, those two things are very intrinsically linked, but I realize that they aren't necessarily for everybody. So when I was writing the book, I had to try really hard to rein myself in from like going way too like Buddhist with, with everything. But for me personally, definitely my meditation practice. I find that very, very valuable for myself too. It's an ancient practice and one of those that if we do it regularly, it can, it literally rewires our brain. Um, I'd love to know from you, what is next for you and where can people reach you who want to uh, contact you, learn more about all of this? Yeah. What is next? What an interesting question at an interesting time. <laughs> um, I can say that with the co-hosts of my podcast, Multi-Amory, we are in the process of trying to get a book into the world. Um, that's still in its early stages. You know, we have a proposal, we have our literary agents who are trying to get it out there, but fingers crossed soon we'll be able to have an announcement of a book coming out specifically about 
communication tools um, that apply not only in non-monogamous relationships, but in traditional relationships as well. So where people can find more information about that is they can go to multiamory.com um, or they can pull up the podcast Multiamory on whatever your favorite podcast player is. For stuff about me, you can go to my website, which is dedekerwinston.com. Just make sure to check the spelling of my name in the show notes or something like that. And yeah, if people are also interested in coaching, they can reach out to me at dedekerwinston.com. Excellent. I will definitely make sure to put all of this in the show notes. And I really love this conversation with you, Dedeker. And my takeaway is that there is not a default model for love. There is no one way it has to be. It's our choice, our agency, and we should be free. And it should be normal to choose whatever suits our soul best. And whether that's monogamy or polyamory or any of the multiple other options that are out there. Uh, Dedeker Winston, thank you so much for speaking with me today on the Superhumanized podcast. Yeah, that was very well said. Thank you so much for having me on. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution.